living in a command economy and then suddenly you, you're trying to transition to a market economy or to something else. A lot of what would previously have been considered public higher education institutions are kind of being semi-privatised. I'm going to put my money on rankings being the, you know, the next big thing. The history of knowledge, learning has passed on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Welcome everyone who tuned in, be you in Toronto, in Canada, or in Beijing, in China, or elsewhere in between. Welcome to Scholar Talk. Scholar Talk is a special project, special initiative by Scholar Network, where we sit down with prominent individuals and discuss pressing issues that concern countries in the Eurasian region. My name is Alessia Dabgaluk. I'm your co-host and joining me today is Emma Sabzaliva to discuss uh, a topic of uh, higher education in Central Asia. So Emma is a special guest for us. She is currently pursuing her PhD at the University of uh, Toronto in Canada and she is uh, looking at uh, how and why changes uh, happen in higher education and her special focus is on the post-Soviet region. She's also a research associate at the Center for Study of Canadian and International Higher Education at the University of Toronto and is working on several research projects, including one between the Higher School of Economics in Russia and University of Oxford in the UK about the research capacity in Eurasia. She has a lot behind her shoulders before she started her doctoral research, so she enjoyed uh, a career in higher education administration in the UK, but she also consulted on the education projects uh, and management governments of Tajikistan with World Bank, Estonia, the UK, University of Oxford and University of Central Asia. She has published extensively. <laughs> she has published many academic articles on the topic of uh, higher education more generally and specifically on the post-Soviet space. But academic articles are not the only medium in which she explores the topic of higher education and uh, societal uh, issues in, in Central Asia. She also started a blog in 2011 at um, emma It is linked in the description to both the podcast and Scholar Talk on YouTube. And it's a fascinating source that I have personally found a couple of weeks ago and started devouring since then. There is a lot there. That is very interesting for those of you who are interested in the in the topic of higher education in Central Asia. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us, Emma, to uncover this uh, very mysterious thing from many people in the region and in the topic of higher education. Thank you for joining Scholar Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Alessia, and for the beautiful introduction. Um, I feel a little bit embarrassed now, but <laughs> we'll do what we can. Um, and I just want to take the opportunity to not only thank you, but everybody in your network. It's a really fantastic initiative. I'm happy to learn about it and I'm happy to contribute. And I wish you all very much success with this podcast and with your future initiatives as well. So just in case we run out of time later, I wanted to make sure I said that. Right Thank you very much. Right. Yeah. So to make sure that we don't actually run out of time too early, uh, let's jump into our conversation. There is a plethora of questions we could cover, but I want to start with a question to you as a person who worked in both uh, Central Asian region and uh, in uh, the Western institutions, as I've just mentioned when uh, I introduced you. So I was curious, based on your experience, uh, what, in your opinion, are the most common misperceptions about the higher education sector in Central Asia among those foreign education professionals who either come to work in Central Asian education institutions, look for establishing some cooperation channels there, or enter the region with their own initiatives? So I, th I think 
I can really talk about my own personal perspective. You know, you, you laid out some of the things that I've done in my previous career, but it's important to note that I started my working career in Tajikistan, in Central Asia, at a point where, honestly, I didn't know very much, if anything at all, about Central Asia, about the region, and certainly not about different higher educations outside of the ones that I had grown up with. So from that personal perspective, I think I could say I had very little understanding about how deep and how rich the educational history is in Central Asia. And I think, you know, now over the course of many years of studying Central Asia and continuing to connect with people and um, who may not be as familiar, that's absolutely an area where I think there is a lack of understanding. So Avicenna, as he's known in the West, uh, Abu Ibn Sino, who was a 10th and 11th century, basically a polymath, you know, at the time when, when you could do everything because not everything had been discovered, was, I think, in Tajikistan, they would claim him as Tajik. Maybe the Uzbeks might claim him as Uzbek, but he's absolutely from the Central Asia region. And he is somebody who, for example, his medical encyclopedia was still being used in Italy and in other Western countries 500 years after he died. And that's something which people don't often connect to the Central Asia region. You know, they might look at it and think, well, you know, in Kazakhstan and in Kyrgyzstan, we have a much nomadic tradition. So if you know people are moving around and so they're not going into a school, so it's a different understanding of how education happens and how learning happens. So that's something which I think people often overlook and they see because, you know, maybe Central Asia is a blank spot on the map or maybe, you know, they think, oh, it's next to Afghanistan. There's been a lot of conflict and war in Afghanistan. So there's kind of some sense that, you know, nothing happens here because we don't know about it. Actually, the absolute opposite is true. You know, it's an incredibly well-developed region. The history of knowledge, learning has passed on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think that leads to the second point I would make on this, which is that we don't often know enough when we're from outside of the region about the historical traditions and about the rich sort of learning and education that has happened there. And that sort of leads us to think that perhaps the more recent educational traditions, um, so all of the five Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, were part of the Soviet Union until 1991. And although they have these rich educational histories, the higher education systems were formalized during that 20th century period when they were part of the Soviet Union. So, you know, when they became independent in 1991, they inherited, you know, the sort of what a university did or what a specialized institute did or what a college did was looked like it did across the Soviet space. And people coming, particularly, I would say, from the West in the 90s and 2000s might have had conceptions that that model that Soviet model was deficient. And in some ways, you know, this, there were certainly gaps in terms of what students were being taught. You know, if you were being taught history of the USSR or Marxism 101 or whatever the equi local equivalent was, and suddenly you're in a non-communist state, you know, there's, there's a certain gap there. And, you know, if you, you were in a, living in a command economy and then suddenly you, you're trying to transition to a market economy or to something else or as was trying to be imposed from the outside, um, but you're not being taught business or marketing or some of these other subjects which students uh, may be studying. There was a perception, I think, that that was a deficiency and a gap. And I think rather than it necessarily being a gap, we need to think about the strengths of the inherited systems of higher education that these five countries had coming into 20th century, coupled with that much older legacy. And so those are sort of two areas where I think there's a, there's a bit of misunderstanding. The inherited Soviet systems, uh, they definitely have their own strength. 
But over the last couple of decades, ever since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, right, um, there has been a trend. And of course, it's different in many in different Central Asian countries, right? It's, it's not like it's uh, homogenous. But there has been a certain trend of the diminishing quality of the tertiary education. You mentioned uh, you've looked into uh, at Tajikistan, uh, right, in one, in one of your articles that I just recently read. What do you think are the roots of this problem of the diminishing higher education uh, these days? Yeah, that, that's a really excellent question. And I think it's um, a question that doesn't just concern Tajikistan, although that's the country where I have done the majority of my research in Central Asia, but it does concern a number of different countries. And as you said, also outside of the Central Asia region. Um, in some senses, maybe that connects back to your previous question. Maybe there's some misperception about what do we mean when we talk about quality? You know, what are we measuring quality against? Um, so then the question becomes, you know, like, well, what does it mean to be a, quote, a good university or, or to produce a well-qualified graduate? So some, in some respects, you know, that notion of quality is, is highly subjective. But from my research in the region, and I do a lot of interview-based research, I do a lot of interviews, I do a lot of work, for example, with faculty members, with academics, and I do, but I do hear that narrative from them. You know, they're concerned. So a lot of people tell me, they're concerned about the quality of school education and that potentially having been something that has diminished. And so they will say that students come to university less well prepared than they used to be. So remember, again, we're making a comparison between different systems when we're talking to people who've been teaching in higher education for a number of decades. So they may say that students are less well prepared. But then in turn, if those students are coming into university less well qualified to study higher education and perhaps then leaving higher education less well qualified, you potentially get yourself into like a vicious cycle where those graduates go off to teach the next generation of students who then come similarly ill prepared. So there's certainly in some situations a case to be made to say that perhaps the quality of school education has diminished in comparison to how it used to be. I don't think that would fully I don't think that would fully get to the root of this quality issue. I think there's a number of different things that go on in here. But that's one factor to think about. The other, as I said, is thinking about, you know, like how we understand quality and what exactly do we mean by that. Another thing that I would say is that in the 1990s, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when, you know, you have these newly independent governments. So across those 15 former Soviet republics, some of the republics had had a history of being independent before. In the five Central Asian states, whilst there have been many configurations, many political sort of organized rulings, they had never had independence with the borders that they inherited in 1991. That's significant because during the 1990s, as these newly formed nation states, there's significant work to be done, for example, in creating a national constitution, in setting out the foundations for national education systems. And while all that is happening, what we see across the countries in many cases is higher education isn't very closely regulated. It isn't being very closely monitored. And that partly leads to massive growth in the number of higher education institutions. So universities, colleges, uh, what in the Soviet system, I think we might translate into English as specialized institutes, a little bit like universities, but instead of being multi-faculty, they would specialize in one particular area of technology or I don't know, music or something like that. So in Kyrgyzstan, for example, between 1988, just before the end of the Soviet Union and 2015, there is a 420% growth in the number of higher education institutions in the system. And at that time, Kyrgyzstan has a population of 5 million, about the same as Scotland, for example. Um, so that's 
that's huge growth. So with that huge growth, that's one thing. Another reason that is partly a cause and partly an effect of the growth is privatization. And I know you want to talk a little bit about that as well. So in 1992 and 1993, the Central Asian countries introduced laws that allowed universities and higher education institutions to charge tuition fees. And that is part of a kind of general shift towards the privatization of higher education, which is completely different from the Soviet system, which was free at the point of entry. And all higher education institutions are publicly funded, as in they're funded by the government. So along with this massive growth in the number of higher education institutions, you'll you also see privatization happening. So part of the growth, at least in the 1990s, is stimulated by this need to earn an income. If the, the state's kind of busy elsewhere, or there's, there's also huge economic difficulties like riding across the former Soviet space in the early 1990s, in publicly funded in state universities, oftentimes people weren't being paid. And so there's kind of a natural reaction, I think, to uh, look for other ways to secure an income. So all of that in turn then means that with this proliferation of universities and colleges, the quality issue comes into question because they're not necessarily being regulated. And you absolutely see the rise of some, not all, but some private institutions, and they are the primarily the private ones where, frankly, they're not offering you a higher education of any kind at all. What they're offering you is the opportunity to pay some money and receive a degree. Um, and we, as you know, probably know, we commonly use the phrase diploma mill. Uh, to talk about institutions like that. And I think that has definitely affected the quality of higher education over time. So I'll, I'll stop there at this point, because I know you want to talk. Do you want to move on and talk? Should we talk a bit more about privatization? <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I think as you, were, as you were talking about privatization, as you were talking about this shift uh, post the USSR collapse, which pressed basically higher education institutions also to seek some alternative uh, sources of income for themselves to sustain uh, their their activities. When you were talking about this, I was, I was actually thinking also about the salaries of teachers, which are still notoriously low. And I think it's also a very important factor, which probably we don't have time to cover. But it also it also links to the uh, privatization, I think, as, as a potential solution to this uh, issue. I definitely want to talk more about the privatization. And I want to touch on um, the following question. So there are many of these issues and again they might be slightly different in different central asian states post ussr collapse but uh what has been this trend of privatization you said there have been many more universities in kyrgyzstan there were more private universities you said some of them uh many of them haven't really offered uh, um, like a, a new uh, type uh, of education. It's, it's just, you know, a paid degree, which is uh, essentially similar to, to what you would receive in public institutions uh, before. But has what was the general macro level picture there? Has privatization been successful in any way in Central Asia? How has it been um, in the past couple of decades? How has it been developing? Yeah, again, it's a really interesting question. And I think private higher education in some of the Central Asian countries is much more than an experiment. It's very firmly established as um, an aspect. Private higher education institutions are very grounded now in part of the higher education landscape. And that's particularly the case in Kazakhstan, uh, where if you look at the numbers and the balance between publicly funded and privately funded higher education institutions, it's 50-50 now. And I think that might surprise some people who you know, perhaps aren't as familiar with the region. So that means that you know, fully half of all the universities and colleges are private. Now, when we're talking about private, we mean they primarily receive funding from private sources, so not from the government. 
in Kyrgyzstan, a third of the higher education sector is private. Uh, I don't have the numbers for Uzbekistan, but I do know that there's quite a, a, a growing number there of private higher education institutions. That's a very recent development. And in Uzbekistan until 2016, the, the system was almost entirely public. What's interesting there is that although the system in Uzbekistan was entirely public, there are a number of quite prominent foreign branch campuses. So universities from other countries that set up a campus within Uzbekistan. So one of the most well-known ones, for example, is Westminster University. Um, so that's a, a British university, which has long had a branch in Tashkent, capital of Uzbekistan. That was all happening at the same time as the system remained highly public. This is a, it, it's particularly interesting, I think, to look at this sort of private higher education because it is so varied across the region. Turkmenistan is difficult to know or to say very much about higher education because the system is so closed. So my, my knowledge there is rather peripheral. But Tajikistan, for example, even Tajikistan experimented with some private higher education uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, but by about 2005, at the point where listeners and, and watchers may know that there was a civil war in Tajikistan that was fought on and off between 1992 and 1997, and that had quite a severe impact on the government's ability to, to really make any kind of reform to higher education. Nevertheless, we see a number of private universities and colleges opening in Tajikistan, but by 2005, the, you know, the, the situation has calmed, the government has basically retaken control over how the country is governed and shuts down the remaining private higher education institutions. So right now, Tajikistan is a global outlier. There are no private higher education, domestically operated private higher education institutions in Tajikistan. And then, you know, in one of the research projects I'm doing at the moment, we're looking at the growth of private higher education, and it really is a global phenomenon. So although Kazakhstan may seem like an outlier for Central Asia, it absolutely fits in the model of what we see happening in other parts of the world. Tajikistan, though, really doesn't. There is uh, the University of Central Asia, which is a, a regional university that has campuses currently in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan with a plan to open one in Kazakhstan as well. That is not run by the government. It's, um, but it, it, it's, uh, it's an initiative of the Aga Khan Development Network, yes, and that could be seen as a sort of private initiative there. So, you know, it's a, it's a really mixed picture and you know as well as Westminster University in Uzbekistan there's a number of what we could consider sort of elite higher education institutions in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and then you know I would consider them to be elite because the number of people who could gain access to them is quite limited based on the fact that they use English as their medium of instruction so that would be like Kemet University in Almaty, the American University of Central Asia in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, more recently we had Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. So there's a small number of universities like that. Nazarbayev was founded as a state university, but it's, Kazakhstan has these really interesting organizational structures for higher education, which now mean, and it's sort of shifting all the time, but it means that a lot of what would previously have been considered public higher education institutions are kind of being semi-privatized. So again, you know, there's some definitional issues that you would want to think about there. So yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I mentioned before as well, like in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, we saw huge numbers of these really small private higher education institutions emerging in a period of, um, you know, lack of regulation. In fact, one person that I have interviewed for some research told me about when she worked for a quality, a government quality assurance committee and they were basically sent around to look at these actual to actually see and go physically see where are these buildings 
right? What does this university that says it's a university or a college or whatever look like? And they went to one and they said it was, you know, basically a three bedroom apartment in a very small town. And they went in and there were no facilities, there were no computers, there's no evidence that any sort of higher learning is happening here. So the point of that anecdote is not only to sort of exemplify what I mean when I'm talking about these diploma mills, but also to show how, you know, over time the governments are starting to crack down on those, uh, those smaller institutions. So you might see over time some shifts in the number of private institutions in some of the Central Asian countries as governments start to, it's, you know, when I say crackdown, I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a sort of authoritarian way, but more in the sense that um, governments are really emphasizing our quality assurance, yeah, regulation, so the role, of, the role of the government becomes a regulator of quality. And in that sense, you know, if you don't meet particular guidelines, then you can't continue to operate and you won't continue to receive your license. I want to switch to the next question about more focusing more on the student exchange and the institutional standards. You mentioned the University of Westminster in Tashkent. Actually, my friend, uh, my friend also studied uh, at the University of Westminster in, uh, in London. And then for her bachelor's project, she actually managed to connect to the University of Westminster campus in Tashkent. So she did some research uh, in Uzbekistan, which I think is an indicator of a very positive dynamic in establishing connections with higher education institutions abroad, but focusing on the um, student exchange uh, in the region. So we've mentioned that uh, there is a common Soviet heritage, right? But compared to many other countries, Central Asian countries, they're only uh, beginning their journey in the cross-border higher education cooperation, right? And uh, including establishment of branches of different institutions. But among themselves, uh, Central Asian states don't really like have that much of, I mean, they do have some exchange across students, but a lot of it is happening thanks to this overlap in the post-Soviet similarities in their education systems. It's not that uh, there are very robust standards, as you mentioned, the whole legal space and regulatory framework and higher education environment is, uh, is fairly loose right now. Is there any willingness among the Central Asian states to harmonize standards in higher education, do you think? And do you think it makes sense to push the standards towards uh, some uh, international standards like Bologna processing in the European Union, or there should be some separate specific standards uh, in higher education in Central Asia? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to, to delve into um, in that question, but I really like the emphasis you're thinking of about how these higher education systems are internationalizing. Um, I mean, you, you suggest that it might be sort of beginning their journey, but I think if your, your country is only 30 years old, you really only have a limited amount of time within which you could have done any sort of international cooperation. Um, so let me, let me start with harmonization. So the idea that you want to try and um, standardize, you know, your qualifications framework, usually that's the main way through which that's done or your quality assurance guidelines in the same way that it could be comparable with other countries. And that's typically done, we see that, um, primarily done through the European Union's Bologna process that you mentioned, which has a series of principles about harmonization and about mutual recognition of qualifications. So the idea there, as you know, is to encourage students to be able to be mobile within that Bologna space or the European higher education area. What we see in Central Asia is harmonization in higher education happening to some extent, but as you've suggested, that's not happening on a Central Asian basis if you like there's no there's very weak integration between the five countries 
Um, I've just been doing some research with a colleague at Oral Federal University in Russia, exactly about this issue about harmonization of higher education, about the idea of sort of region building um, in higher education. So what we see happening in Central Asia is that happening primarily through the European Union's Bologna process. Okay, I say European Union, it didn't start life. People always say, remind me, it didn't start life as a European Union program. The Bologna process kind of has filtered up and now become formalized. So that's what I mean by that. So, you know, in Tajikistan, if you go to um, Horog State University, which is in the southeast corner of the country, it's closer to Afghanistan and China than it is to anywhere in Europe. You will talk to people there who know about what's happening in the Bologna process and who really advocate for it because in principle, it allows their students and their faculty members to be mobile, to go on these exchanges, to participate in research programs with other European partners and so on. So the Bologna process is having a really big influence across higher education in Central Asia and in Tajikistan. The government has sort of formally adopted those principles as something that it wants to be part of the national education development strategy. You know, there's a small difficulty there because the way that the European higher education area is constructed means that none of the Central Asian countries, with the exception of Kazakhstan, could ever become a full member of this Bologna process because of their geography. So you have to have some territory in what's considered to be the European space. And Kazakhstan has this tiny corner in the West, which is counted as part of Europe. So Kazakhstan can be and is a member of this Bologna process. The other countries can, you know, they can sign up to the principles of it, but they sort of, it's like, you can be a member of the club, but you can only have associate membership. You know, they can't be full members. So I think there's some, some more research to be done about why it is that policymakers are so keen to adopt these principles, knowing that it's effectively an exclusionary process for most of the Central Asian states. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll sort of hold that there, you know, as a researcher, I love to find areas where there's more work to be done because, you know, then it's like exciting, right? There's more things to be done there. So I just want to also mention two other kind of regional initiatives which are having an impact on harmonization. So from the Russian side, we have the Eurasian Economic Union. That's a membership-based organization as well. And although the Eurasian Economic Union, as its name suggests, is primarily about creating a common market for goods and for trade, it does have quite a significant sort of stream of higher education and educational activity looking specifically at harmonization of qualifications, mutual recognition of qualifications. Um, So, so far in Central Asia, just Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are members of the Eurasian Economic Union. So to that extent, um, its influence over harmonization has been somewhat limited because just two of the five countries are members. But I think that that is that's kind of an ongoing conversation. We sort of I read news reports every couple of months from Tajikistan or Uzbekistan where they say, well, maybe we will join the Eurasian Economic Union after all. And maybe we won't. Maybe we will. So there's some ongoing conversation there. So that's from the sort of Russian side. But the other initiative, which is interesting and growing very fast, is China's Belt and Road Initiative, which, again, more so perhaps in the Eurasian Economic Union, it emphasizes education because of this idea about people-to-people friendship and the sort of cultural aspects of the connections through the Belt and Road Initiative. So with that one, again, we see some push moves towards mutual recognition of qualifications and other sort of forms of harmonization. But because it's a much looser alliance, you know, it doesn't require membership. In that sense, we don't really see so much formal drive towards harmonization either within Central Asia or between Central Asia and China or Central Asia, China and the other 
sort of countries which are connected with the Belt and Road Initiative. So, you know, for, for people who might be watching or listening who don't perhaps know so much about Central Asia, you know, I hope what this shows as well is that there's an, a real, a lot of activity that's going on. And if you look geographically at where Central Asia is, you know, it's right in the heart of Eurasia. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, the fact that it's like neighboring Russia and China alone should be, it just sort of helps to explain some of that centrality. So it's not peripheral at all. It's absolutely central. So that's sort of harmonization. And I mean, I think also you asked about, you know, not just what is happening, but what kind of benchmarks might higher education systems in Central Asia be aspiring towards? And again, I think, as I said before, I would counsel just a little bit of caution there thinking, you know, when, you, when you're benchmarking, you're benchmarking against something. So to what, what is it that you want the system to be? Do you want the system to try and be a replica of what you think a European higher education institution looks like? Do you want this higher, do you want your higher education system to look like, well, for example, we know in the 1990s when Kazakhstan was looking to create new kinds of higher education institution, they were quite strongly influenced by Singapore and the way that Singapore had gone through this huge, you know, spell of economic development earlier in the 20th century and the role that higher education played in that. So again, you know, you just sort of need to think a little bit carefully and, and critically about, you know, well, what are you benchmarking against and what does that tell you about what you want your higher education system to look like? And, you know, who is that higher education system then serving? What kinds of students do you want? What kind of graduates do you want to produce at the end of it? For sure. Again, a lot of things to that we could go deeper in and we could just right. talk for hours. <laughs> Personally, I think in terms of regional cooperation and harmonization in European Union, there is also a huge factor of common labor market, of course, that is making it a little bit easier to build some expectations about what you want your credits to do and how well and you know what you want their diplomas to look like uh, to simplify it, uh, to very much simplify it. But uh, I'll have to, with heavy heart, uh, leave this topic um, to, um, uh, to make sure that we cover uh, one of the most pressing ones, uh, of course, still uh, at this point in time, COVID-19, everyone is locked home, remote education, very interesting practices that we can see in some countries like in Uzbekistan, where you see you know, lessons streamed on the TV in schools, but also in the universities, you have remote education. Looking at all of them and comparing them, um, which country do you think has maybe managed to address uh, this uh, switching mode of education and, and learning in higher, in higher education better than others? Any uh, interesting innovative practices that uh, you would want to highlight as an external observer? Mm, yeah, no, it's a, it's a question that concerns not only Central Asia, but I think every country in the world at the moment. And um, it's nice that you've sort of picked up the connections between that and higher education. We, we read a lot more, I think, about school level education, compulsory education, and you know, there's a lot of logic to doing that um, as well. Um, you mentioned Uzbekistan, and I would want to highlight as well the way in which the pivot to remote learning has happened there. And again, speaking more perhaps about school education and higher education, uh, but the fact that you know, within a matter of weeks, perhaps even less than that, we see teachers teaching via TV-based lessons. You know, sort of, it suggests on the one hand, you know, a readiness of teachers to be very flexible, um, to continue to support their students' learning. And on the other hand, by the government, which is sort of making the, the space available and understanding that um, actually internet access, which is something that in many places we take for granted, but in Uzbekistan, particularly in remote areas, once you're outside of the capital city, you, you can't necessarily take for granted. So understanding that that's the situation, but 
rather than denying it or saying, no, no, it's fine, students will somehow find a way, which to be honest happens a little bit here in Canada, where internet access isn't equally distributed. And certainly, you know, when you go to some of the Northern communities where indigenous people live, there is definitely discrepancy in who and how can get access or regular access to the internet. So I think that recognition was quite important and the ability then to deliver remote learning in different ways. So, you know, that's a, that's a practice from school education, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's, you know, it just happened so fast. Of course, there are still some, you know, discrepancies in the lessons. I've been told by people that, you know, the English language lessons didn't really happen very well. But in some of the lessons being taught on TV, they even had sign language interpreters, you know? So it's kind of a recognition of the different needs of students during this time. In Kyrgyzstan, again, in relation to school education, there were a couple of really fantastic initiatives to support students through new websites that sort of permitted online learning. And again, a consideration of like, how do you do that learning if you don't necessarily have a computer or internet access? So really thinking quite creatively about different modes of learning. I also found out about a, a lovely initiative in Kyrgyzstan, which was, it's like a buddy scheme. So recognizing that students, so we're talking about like secondary school, high school students in remote areas, you know, might be feeling quite isolated. And we know that, you know, COVID-19 is having a huge impact on mental health on young people. And in response, a group of university students in the capital of Kyrgyzstan basically buddied up with these high school students. They found ways to get them cell phones, even at a point where nobody could travel around Kyrgyzstan, they were able to get them phones so that they could speak to them by phone, text them, you know, and sometimes it's these very simple initiatives, which actually are the most meaningful, because what they're doing is saying to these young, you know, even younger than them people, you'll get through it. And sometimes that's just what you need to hear in a difficult time like this. Um, I don't think if you look around the world, that anywhere has done education, let's say, perfectly. Nobody was really as well prepared for this pivot, this switch to remote learning that we might have been. We know that pandemics have happened before. We know that emergencies have happened before. There's a lot of learning all around the world that needs to be done, I think, coming out of COVID-19. What is going to be interesting now is how systems that are still nationally governed look towards the sort of safe return to higher education. So uh, recently Kazakhstan issued a national plan which covers school education and higher education and it sets out exactly like who's going to go back face to face and under which conditions they can do that and which kind of students So in higher education for example they have said most students will continue to learn online or remotely in other ways but primarily online and you know in order to prepare for that they had done in Kazakhstan a survey of teachers to try and understand you know where pedagogical gaps are how they could support teachers through extra training and where in universities they need to have people in face to face for example if they have lab work or if they're doing a practicum, like some kind of work experience, making the conditions for that as safe as possible. Yeah, I was uh, listening to you talking about the body program and I was uh, feeling this very uh, sense of pride about Scholar because um, we had a very small level, of course, not on the same level as, as probably the program you mentioned. We, uh, during COVID, launched our own uh, Russian classes uh, for, for, for the members of our network who were interested in studying a new language. And uh, definitely an interesting experience, and definitely uh, it does it does feel like you are making a small but meaningful contribution, and making at least if you make someone feel that 
um, they don't feel lonely and that they matter and there are still resources that we all have, not just higher education institutions, but we as humans have also resources, learning resources that we can share with each other um, definitely makes uh, everyone feel um, the sense of belonging and less depressive, which this period definitely was. Right, I'm painfully aware of the time, probably have to switch to the last question and more you know, philosophical one, a more uh, long-term and visionary probably for you, probably also exciting sometimes to ponder uh, upon as you're researching uh, about the higher education in Central Asia and post-Soviet space. Where do you see higher education sector going in Central Asia, in, in Central Asian countries in uh, the next five to 10 years? Do you see it converging? Do you see it diverging? Or maybe what you would want to see uh, as a development, as a new development in the region? Oh, wow. Now that's, a, that's a, an exciting topic. So I think in terms of convergence, as I mentioned, there's some convergence already, particularly around the principles of the Bologna process in terms of the commitments towards student and faculty mobility. That's often the part of the Bologna process, which is taken up. But also quality assurance is really rising up the agenda and becoming something that's taken, taken seriously, adopting the sort of this what's called you know the European model so there's some convergence around that there's also this idea which um, is translates used in Russian usually but it translates into English as the world education space and it's this idea which is propagated by many government policy makers that in order for our higher education system to develop we have to be part of the world education space now we know that this there isn't this actual space that exists, but it expresses an ambition to reform higher education in ways that make it, I think, on the one hand, more internationalized. So more international students coming in, more more students from the country going out, more exchanges, more international research collaborations. But on the other hand, it suggests to me that policymakers envision their higher education systems being governed, being organized, being funded in ways that they see in other spaces around the world. Now, although people talk about the world education space, I think primarily and often focus on is this kind of European North American model of higher education. So, you know, you may have already appreciated from my comments before that I'm, I'm slightly critical about, you know, the sort of blind adoption of this concept without necessarily thinking about what is the, what does this concept entail is this something that you know is that works for our states and again that's you know that's a critique i would have not only of central asia but any country in the world which sort of seeks to emulate something that it sees somewhere else so you know we see convergence on that we see convergence on bologna i've said already and i don't think we will see in the future much convergence between the central asian states other than sort of where it happens as a result of cooperating on some other, you know, maybe European or maybe Belt and Road project. So in that sense, there might be some more cooperation there. I mean, thinking about policies and what might happen, I'm going to put my money on rankings being the, the, you know, the next big thing. Like in Kazakhstan, we see uh, national rankings now. Um, we see adherence to international rankings. Al Farabi Kazakh National University, which is the country's flagship university, got really excited recently. It made you know one of the international rankings, and it was a big deal because you know from from their perspective, it's saying look, the quality of our education is aligned to the quality of this you know world education, international education. So it's connected to what I was saying before there. 
Uh, so rankings in Kazakhstan have been going for a little while now, and I think we will see more of that shift. So in Russia, for example, there's this university excellence program called the 5100 program. You may be aware of it started in 2012, where the government pumped a lot of extra funding into a select number of universities in order for them to improve, in order for them to get a place in the top 100 of uh, one of three different international university rankings. So Russia and Kazakhstan's trajectory in higher education over the past 20, 30 years is actually pretty similar. And I wouldn't be surprised if in Kazakhstan there was a similar kind of funding competition organized by the government. So that does two things. One, it shows the importance of these international rankings and international standards for higher education on a domestic system. But it also shows that the higher education system may become more hierarchical, where you have you know, a small number of very well-funded, research-intensive, possibly English medium, possibly not, universities at the top, and then, you know, sort of increasingly less stratified group of other higher education institutions, which get less state funding and perhaps over time become less attractive to students or attractive to different groups of students. So also on rankings, um, I mentioned that in Uzbekistan, you know, we've seen some quite big shifts since the end of 2016 when President Mirzoyev came into power. And in higher education, I've written about this on my blog as well, you know, there's been some, an incredible number of reforms just being pushed through. I imagine that, you know, higher education leaders in Uzbekistan must be exhausted right now having to try and sort of cope with all of those. But I also see rankings becoming more central to that discourse in Uzbekistan. In Kyrgyzstan, that's, you know, maybe has a lesser extent, but they did, interestingly, subcontract the Kazakh National Ratings Agency to do the Kyrgyz, a new Kyrgyz national ranking. Yeah, you're following? Yeah. So the, the Kyrgyz ranking is being done by a Kazakh agency. I mean, it's, it's national, but it's sort of a third, arm, like it's uh, arm's length from the government. So there's some interest in rankings there. We don't necessarily see the rankings trends that much in Tajikistan or Turkmenistan, but I think, you know, if you wanted to group the states together, they're in a slightly different category. Tajikistan... I was thinking quite a long time about what, what might happen in higher education in Tajikistan. I mean, the, the pessimistic side would suggest that not much will change. It's a fairly small system. It will continue to be very centrally governed. Um, you know, the, the government still appoints university leaders, which is a practice from the Soviet period that is more or less kind of been moved on from in the other former Soviet spaces, not entirely. But it's symptomatic of how tightly controlled higher education is in Tajikistan. We might, uh, with the coming presidential elections in Tajikistan later this year, it's possible that we'll see a new president. If it's a new president, it will still be the same family, but it will be the next generation. So the son of the current president may be put forward to run. With that generational shift, were that to happen, I think that could prompt some minor reforms in the higher education system in Tajikistan. I could, for example, see that younger generation being more open to reintroducing private higher education institutions. We might see uh, more international branch campuses opening. And one thing we haven't really talked about at all is Russia during this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Those are the only university branches in Tajikistan are from Russian universities, right? Apart from the University of Central Asia, yeah, the only other branch, uh, which isn't really a branch campus, it's a different model. But other than that, yeah, it's, um, and Russian branch campuses, even in Kazakhstan, which, you know, ostensibly now doesn't look to Russia, but looks everywhere for good practice in higher education. We even see the number of Russian branch campuses in Kazakhstan increasing. So that's, you know, that's a, maybe, like you said, several times, it's a whole other area for conversation another time. 
But what I'm trying to say, I think, in Tajikistan is that you could see some, you know, proliferation there. There was some interest a few years ago in opening a branch campus of a Singaporean university in Tajikistan. That never happened. But as far as I know, you know, that, that's a dialogue that could be reopened, for example. And that would sort of, you know, that would be really beneficial for students in Tajikistan because there's different forms of higher education that you can then think about rather than being in a, in a somewhat, frankly, closed and limited system which students there face at the moment. So I swing when I think about the future between, you know, kind of optimism and what might the possibilities be and then perhaps more pragmatic side, which says, well, on the basis of the experience so far, perhaps, you know, it's not the pendulum isn't going to shift particularly far in Tajikistan at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I hope I hope through the conversation that we've really got people excited, um, not only about Central Asia, but about studying higher education. Um, you know, I'm very happy to continue the conversation many other, you know, in, in other formats. Um, but again, you know, thanks so much for inviting me to join you today. Thank you for joining Scholar Talk, Emma. Yes, let's finish on a positive note. Uh, regardless of what is happening in Central Asia, positive, negative trends, it's definitely a lot, <laughs> a lot of exciting things happening, a lot of development all the time. And since higher education is all about young people, young people will see adjusting pretty quickly and learning in whatever way possible, also through our educational projects that are upcoming soon. So yeah, thank you for joining Scholar Talk. Thank you again, Emma. Make sure to check out Emma's blog, as I mentioned at the beginning of uh, this Scholar Talk. And uh, we'll see you very soon in the next Scholar Talk. Thank you, everyone, for joining. And thank you, Emma. Pleasure. Thank you.